0: Uh, as far as I can remember, is the son of Ahaz or Ahab. Sorry, Ahab. He's the son of Ahab and Jezebel. And if anyone, some of you might know the name Jezebel. Very, very good idea not to ever call one of your daughters Jezebel. All right. Pretty much has no positive connotations. Um, so if you're that kind of person, you still want to call him that. That's cool. Here we go. satellite. We've got about six slides of reading, right? I'll make a couple of comments on the way through, and uh, we'll see how we go. Afterward, Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad was a bit of a terror, really. He was like someone who had ADD. He'd come in and he'd have a shot at Israel, or uh, I think it was mostly Israel. He'd come in and have a shot. wouldn't work. He'd go away. Let's have another go. I'll go back and have another go. Now, commentators suggest probably this is the third time that Ben-Hadad's had a crack at Israel, all right? So what he's done is Ben-Hadad, king of Syria mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. All right, now just think for a moment. I'm not sure how much you're aware, but sieges are brutal. They are absolutely brutal. The point of a siege is this, to seal off a region or a town so that no one can go in or out, so that no supplies can go in or out. And one commentary I read, they actually said The point of a siege is that someone wins. Either the attacking army wins by breaking down walls or by starvation of the people inside or some side dies from disease. Right? This is really gritty stuff. So he's gone up, he's got his army, he's besieged it, he's sealed it off. And often what you actually find with uh, Old Testament towns is they're actually built where a water supply is. So they probably had a water supply in the city, but in terms of having food... They probably didn't have a whole lot of feed in there because typically you don't grow crops in the middle of a city. All right? You grow them in the countryside outside the city walls. So what happens? There was a great famine, not just a famine, a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Right? You get this? This is intense. right now. They're eating dove's dung, probably. It's like, give me the dung. You know, like or I'm gonna stab you. Alright? It's it this is brutal. Okay? Now, I tried to work out what would a shekel be worth, but seriously, it's very difficult to work out what it would be worth. The point here is that it's very, very expensive. Alright? Imagine, I mean, imagine like a donkey's head. Just like. You get home, it's not like... I mean, I remember my pop going to a uh, Chinese restaurant. You know how they cook those fish and they leave the head on and the eyes in it? He, he didn't have any of it. He literally he couldn't eat any of it. He said because he kept looking at it. <laughs> All right? Imagine that. You've gone out to the market. You've paid... You've shelled out a lot of money to get a donkey's head. I don't, I don't know. Does anyone... I don't know whether anyone knows. What do you do with a donkey's head? It, do you make soup or stir fry? I don't know. But this is bad, right? And if you actually go uh, and do a little bit of historical research into uh, World War Two, it's actually not that uncommon that people eat weird things when they don't have any food because they've just got to eat. They have to eat. So uh, it's not uncommon uh, in, in wars for people to eat rats uh, and that kind of stuff, right? But this is probably going to a whole new level. So the idea here is the Syrians are going, let's cut them off. Let's cut off their food supplies and we can get them. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him. Imagine you're the king, right? You're under siege, people are eating dove's dung, right? You're under siege, you're going out for a bit of a walk around the wall to see the state of the nation at that point in time, and this happens. A woman cried out to him, saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? All right? He's going, I can't help you. God's the only one that can help and he seems not to be doing anything. I can't help you. This is a dark time. And the king asked her, what is your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Feel the weight of that. I mean, imagine being there. Imagine being the king. He's standing there and his whole city, in a sense, is going to hell. His people are dying in front of his eyes and someone has made a deal with their neighbour to start eating their children and they've already eaten one of them. This is dark, is it not? Imagine being there. Imagine it was your kid. Imagine you were the the mum that had just eaten your kid the day before and you're starving and you're so starving that the other person won't come through on their deal and she wants the king to get them because he's not coming. Th- she's not coming through, so get her. This is deep and dark. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Most of us probably would do something to exp- similar to express that. Now, he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, may God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So what does God do? Sorry, what does the king do? He says, we need to take Elisha's head off. Now, Elisha at the time is known as the prophet of the Lord in the nation. So it's got to be his fault. So let's take him out. He's the one, somehow he thought, he's the one who has all the power and all the sway. He can twist God's arm to do something about this, but he's not doing it. So let's get him. Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched the man from his presence, but before the messenger, inverted commas probably, he's got a message with a sword off with his head. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has come has sent to take off my head. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? So what Elisha knows, God's told Elisha that this guy, that the king has sent some dudes to cut his head off. right? So he's gone. They're coming. Shut the door. But also who's coming behind the people he sent is the king because he's realized he's made a bad call. All right? So he's coming to stop the dudes from killing him because he realized he made a bad call. And while he was still speaking with him, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Let's just deal with you. And then Elisha comes out with this. Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a seer of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, not a donkey's head or dove's dung, a seer of fine flour, and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? What he's saying is this is terrible. We are in a terrible place. It's like you've been in drought for 50 years and God says he's sending lots of rain and this guy's going, he wouldn't even be able to send enough to soak for the ground to have enough water. It's just so dry. Our situation is so bad, God could never actually send enough food to sort our situation out. But Elisha said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Interesting. The God without faith, Elisha says, you're not going to get any. That's an interesting point. And then this, oh, this is cool. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. This is like, you ever seen one of those movies where you're just kind of going, something's just come out of left field. It's going, what... What have they got to do anything? It's almost like the, the camera's on the city and we're looking at all this really terrible stuff going on and then all of a sudden it pans down to outside the city gate to four dudes who don't get to be in the city because they're lepers and they're sitting there and they start having a conversation. Fascinating conversation, very logical one. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine's in the city and we'll die there. And if we sit here, we're going to die here. So come now, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we'll live. And if they kill us, we'll die. Do you like their logic? I mean, they've really said there's one chance for us to live and we could get killed, but if we get killed, it's the same result everywhere anyway, so we might as well take a punt. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. So here's the four outcast lepers... They had to tell everyone that they were lepers and stay away from everyone else. They've had this conversation. They've taken a punt and they get there. And what's there? When these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they found a sizzler salad (laughs) bar that never runs out. They went into the tent and they ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. You see, there's a bit of a problem developing now. The four outcasts that no one wants to know are all of a sudden in the middle of the biggest banquet probably they've ever seen in their whole lives. They've got riches that they've probably never seen before, maybe haven't seen since they've been a leper. They came back, then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Does anyone see there's a bit of a problem developing here? People are eating children in the city and these guys are feasting and hiding stuff. And then... You always have a party peeper. You know what I'm saying? When you're at a party, there's always someone who's a party peeper. There's a party peeper here. Check this out. Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. And the gatekeepers called out, it was told, within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they've gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country and they've used lepers to trick us. Good plan. Thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. Almost there. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king... They've gone and checked it out. It all checks out. The lepers are right. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seer of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate. Remember, this was a guy that didn't trust God, didn't trust the word, didn't have faith people trampled him in the gate so that he died. He literally died. I mean, you imagine it. You've just got this city that's been besieged for a long time and people are eating children. As soon as someone says there's food somewhere, man, it's going to be better than the... Well, it's going to be more intense probably than the most intense death metal concert. Agreed? It will be. I mean, you just... And this guy, he gets trampled and he dies. Just as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seers of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a seer of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God. So the, the writer here saying, see, this is exactly what would happen. If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate and he died. Isn't this an amazing story? It's an amazing story in a sense because if you actually look at the way that Hollywood works and the kind of movies people love, it's always the misfit person that doesn't fit in, that no one writes, that's got nothing, who often comes through and saves the day. And this is it. This This is the absolute biblical story that is kind of like Hollywood. I mean, they should almost make a movie about this. You know, imagine the dudes—they're sitting outside the wall, and they're missing fingers and thumbs and toes. They're probably bleeding. They've got bandages around them. And they're sitting there, and they're just going, "What do you reckon we should do? We're going to die here. We're going to die there. We could die there, but we mightn't. So let's try that one." All right? It's pretty—it's uh, a—it's a, it's a weird—it's a weird story. And I think uh, there's four things that uh, we can draw out of this story for the project, and uh, for you personally, God willing. First thing is this, God intervenes creatively. I don't know how dark things are for you personally. I don't know how dark things are in the areas in which you move. I don't even fully know how dark our society and our culture is. But you know what? God actually has creative ways of getting into that that mess and working in the darkness. I was listening to this uh, Ravi Zacharias message on this and he, uh, he makes this comment, he says, imagine four crawling bodies coming into the palace saying, I know where you can get food. God has a strange way of ensuring that no one takes the glory from creativity. Isn't this creative? This is an incredibly creative way for God to deal with things. And like we were saying earlier, like I was saying earlier, it's, it's great hope for misfits. And the truth is probably most of us are misfits, In fact, as soon as you put your hand up and say, I want to be a Christian and I want to follow Jesus, you've just put your hand up to be a misfit in terms of the rest of the world and the culture of the world. But God actually wants to do something really, really incredible through misfits. All right? And Paul says this in uh, Corinthians, doesn't he, that God chose the weak and the foolish things of the world to shame the strong and the wise. So God, it's almost like an insult. God says, you are weak and you're foolish, but I'm going to do something really cool with you. In a sense, we're all decrepit lepers in a sense, weak lepers outside the city gate and God's saying, I actually want to do something really amazing through you. But you know what? It's not going to be amazing in the typical world's way of thinking about amazing. It's not going to have uh, fireworks. It's not going to have bells and whistles. There's not going to be a pipe band going on because what you see here seems to be the way that God does his work most of the time. It's a weird kind of thing, creative thing where you don't expect it. He just gets the job done. I was watching, uh, I've probably watched, to be honest, I've watched too many atheists in the last two weeks, but I was watching uh, Richard Dawkins on uh, Q&A uh, the other day. He was on Q&A. I mean, I'm like way behind in my TV watching for uh, getting content stuff, but I was, it was back in the middle of uh, 2010, I think. Um, but one of the things that... Uh, Richard Dawkins actually said is he actually sat there and he publicly ridiculed and was very, very uh, sarcastic toward the whole notion that a God would come down to the earth and die for people. He said, it's just stupid. It's the dumbest thing. That is a dumb idea. And he didn't even say why it was a dumb idea. It was a classic fallacy of argumentation where you attack the person and the, rather than dealing with the idea. But that's what he did. He just, he just attacked people who believed it. He said, that's a really dumb idea. And he said to everyone in the crowd, he goes, don't you think so? Don't you think this is the most ridiculous, dumb idea? And inadvertently, just go down to the bottom uh, scripture there. He's actually proving what Paul wrote in, in Corinthians. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, the Jews said anyone who was uh, killed on a tree was cursed. So they're going, we're not going to come and believe in this Jesus guy. He got killed on a tree. And the, the Gentiles are just going, this is the most ridiculous thing. He was a condemned criminal. Why would we believe in him? And Richard Dawkins comes out and he says, this is the dumbest thing that I've ever seen, that a God would come down and give himself. And Paul agrees in some sense with uh, Richard Dawkins. He said, yes, it looks dumb to you, but there's a wisdom and there's a depth about this thing and a creativity about the way that God does his business, which is phenomenal. I mean, I sat there and I, I listened to Richard Dawkins and I thought, in a sense, it is weird. That God would come and He would die for us. And sometimes I'm thinking, when you've been a Christian a long time, or whether you've been in the church for a long period of time, you get to the point where you just think, yeah, that's cool, that's just what God's do. And you're just kind of going, seriously? Like, the creator of all the universe would take on flesh and come and die for you? That's creative, isn't it? (laughs) That's creative. That's not what anyone expects, that's not what the Jews expected. That's not what the Gentiles expect. And in fact, when we go out and we tell people that Jesus came and he was God and he came and he died on a cross, some people are just going to go, well, that's weird. That's creative and it's deep and it's mysterious and it's powerful and it looks weird. Are we happy with that? It is, but it's beautiful. I mean, you see this the whole way through the Bible. If you go back, if you look at that scripture there, Luke 3 verse 1 to 2, this seems to be the way that God does business. I love this. Listen to the who's who here. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, sounds like a straight disease, uh, Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. That's the who's who in the nation, right? The word of God came to John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. You see that? The word Here's the who's who, and God says, I'm going to go to the guy that's eating grasshoppers and honey. He's got a mohair singlet on, made out of camel's hair or whatever it was. All right? That's creative, don't you think? And this is actually good news. Like if you're sitting there and you're just kind of going, oh, I think I'm a bit of a nobody and I just don't know how God's going to use me. You're right in the sweet spot. You are. You're just right in the sweet spot and you just got to go. You're just really, you're just at the point where you've got to go, okay, so I'm weak and I'm foolish and I'm a misfit. God, I'll let you do whatever you want with me and I'll just follow you. And you are the sweet spot person, all right? You kind of, I mean, you can talk with me later because it's probably a bit weird if you're eating grasshoppers and honey, but I'm assuming no one here is that much of a kind of a misfit, right? I mean, seriously, I heard Mark Driscoll talk about John the Baptist and said he was this guy that ate grasshoppers and honey and wore some kind of Jedi robe and walked around like a Jedi warrior in the uh, desert there. He was a weird dude, but kind of curl at the same time because you think, I'd never eat that stuff. God intervenes creatively. Number two. Actually, before we go, I'll just throw this your way. It's good, like not overstepping the market, it's good. And I think it would be good for you this year to, to, to think how is God, God going to intervene creatively? Because he does engage, and he does engage in very, very dark times. So your question is, God, where are you coming in? Just help me to see you when you start to do something. And just almost have a, uh, and this kind of gets overused and it gets talked up a little bit too much, but I think there's a huge amount of value in just an expectation. That, God was going to, that God's going to do something in your situation and a dependence upon him. I mean, really, the, the guy at the gate that got trampled at the end, at the start, he's, you know, the prophet says, God's going to come through and he's going, no, he's not. And then he did and he missed out. I'm assuming there's other people around there that were going, okay, well, this will be interesting. <laughs> 24 hours, how do you go from where we are now to exactly what the prophet said? This is going to be interesting. So we're ready to go. But, uh, and that's what I'd encourage you to do this year. Just be ready to go. We're all probably at some point in time getting, going to get into some really tight, difficult situations and it's not going to be a 24-hour miraculous thing all the time like what has happened here in 2 Kings 6 and 7, but you better believe that God works for the good of those that love Him, who are called according to His purpose and He's going to engage with you this year and He's going to help you. So expect it. Not rudely or demandingly, but expect it. And prayerfully seek him and seek his engagement. There have been times for me in the last probably six months where it's been like that. And one of the things God's taught me is he said, you just need to pray, Peter. You need to trust me more. You need to pray and you need to expect to see me engage with this situation. Not in a rude way, but just because he's a gracious, good dad, he's going to get involved. So have that kind of expectation this year. Because... As John 1.5 says there, God has a habit of shining light into darkness. And the bottom line is, we can go around and we can curse the darkness. Some of you might have heard people say this before, you can curse the darkness all you want, but the best way to get rid of it is that the light comes in and gets involved. And that's exactly what has happened in 2 Kings 6 and 7. Pitch black, probably culturally and spiritually, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. God intervenes, brings some light. Second thing is this, for us, is that God uses means. You see, the risk-taking lepers were part of God's plan, all right? Could God have done it without the lepers? Absolutely, he could have done it without the lepers, because he got rid of the Syrians without the lepers. But it actually seems, and you see this right across the Bible, that people are really central to what God wants to get done. And some people would say, I'm just going to sit back, and I'm going to let God do it. People can go to an extreme view of the sovereignty of God where they, where they do nothing. They sit passively and they say, God's in control and he can make it happen. It, it breeds inactivity. Um, it, it breeds the, the, uh, the heart of assumption that says that God's going to get it all done on his own. But you can also go to the uh, opposite extreme. You can say, look, it all depends upon the lepers. Well, you know what? It didn't all depend upon the lepers. Because the day before... The lepers did that, and on the day before all the food was found, God said it was going to happen. So in a sense, the, the sovereignty of God was overseeing it, but at the same time, there had to be this action by the lepers, and God uses means. And so I wonder for you what your uh, instinctive response is. Are you a passive person that sits back and probably goes to, God's in control, and to be honest, this has been my story most of my life, is I'd... There's been all this preaching in my life about how God's sovereign. and it's absolutely true. But I think God's sovereignty probably should lead to more risk-taking than leading to comfort and uh, being still and not doing anything. Um, You see, God's knowledge of the future and his sovereignty over things actually didn't negate the choices of the lepers. They had to make a decision about what they were going to do and then follow through on it. But, you know, the choices of the lepers actually didn't negate God's sovereignty and His control of the situation either. So if you're sitting there and you're kind of going, I don't understand how those two go together, it's a good thing that you're not God. All right? He does. All you need to know is that God's sovereignty is a good excuse for you to take some big risks. All right? Because that's what you want, isn't it? If you're going to take a big risk, you want to know that someone is good, in control, and looking after you if it all goes pear-shaped. Agreed? Amen? Grace is not God's goodness toward us, is not intended to inspire comfort, but it's intended to inspire risk for the glory of God and for the good of people. One really weird thing about what Christians do with the Bible is that they grab really cool truths in the Bible and they mess them up. God's sovereignty is one of them. It's like, where does it say in the Bible that because God's in charge, we don't have to do anything? But that's an extreme that people go to. Another one is God's grace and His goodness toward us. We get that, we hear that God's really gracious and He wants to give us really good gifts, and we kind of go, Oh, that's cool, so I'm going to have a really good life. And it seems to me that God's grace is intended to inspire you to be a big time risk taker. Because if you fail, there's going to be grace there. Sitting on your couch, being norm at home, doing nothing. I don't think grace is for that. It's just like, Oh, I just got killed on Call of Duty. God, please forgive me for bad play. You know? Just going, that's not what grace is for. Grace is get up off your backside and get out there and see if you can find out what God wants you to do and go really hard at it. And just, if it all goes down in a heap, God's really gracious. Now, we have absolutely no, just let me make one point clear before I say this next thing. There are absolutely no plans for this church to last anything shorter than about 150 years. All right? But I'll just tell you this, hopefully longer than 150. I'll just tell you this though. So, when we were first talking with the leadership at Toowoomba City Church about starting what we're doing out out here, um, this is what we said. We said to them, we're going to give this a red-hot go for two years. And if it crashes and burns, that's cool. All right? I mean, it'd be hard. It wouldn't be nice. But we think this is what God wants us to do, so we're just going to have a good red-hot go at it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. All right? And, I mean, if it turned out in two years after starting that we just had the families of the people who were part of the leadership team, we were the only ones coming to church, at the end of it we'd say, God well we just did it for you, we wanted you to be blessed through it, we wanted you to do lots of things for us, that's cool, we're sorry we probably didn't do it as well as we could have done it, please forgive us. But at the end of it you'd just be going, at least we tried something. And I think that would be God's heart, that would be God's heart for all of us is uh, just try some things. And it may not go well but I just think there's far more shame on someone who never tries anything than someone who tries and fails. Agreed? It just is. That's two. Here's number three. Here's a positive. You know, spiritual death is an absolute certainty. All right? So the lepers are sitting there. The lepers are sitting there and they're just kind of going, if we go back into the city... We're going to die because there's a famine there. If we stay here, we're going to die. And they were actually saying, if we go over to here to the enemy, we're probably going to die as well. Spiritually, there's a parallel there that it actually absolutely is the case that spiritual death is a certainty for every single one of us. It actually doesn't matter if you you love Jesus here today or you don't love Jesus. Spiritually, as a person, you're going to die. Let me tell you the two ways that you can die. You can die by homicide or disease. (laughs) All right? This is all going to make sense in a minute. Okay? Jesus is very, very clear that you need to put yourself to death. His invitation to come and follow him is actually put yourself to death. Deny yourself, take up your cross, put yourself to death and follow me. And what he promises straight after that is he actually, or what he promises if you do that is that you'll be resurrected. You'll live a wonderful life. You'll live an incredible life. You'll live a glorious life. Not in the world's, by the world's definitions, but by his definitions. It will be sensational. But what you've got to do is you've got to kill yourself spiritually. You've got to die to yourself spiritually. You've got to be nailed by Christ on the cross in a sense with him. You know, the other way that you can die spiritually is by disease. And it's gradual, and it just happens over time. And that's when you, ha- when you haven't put yourself to death and come to Christ, that he would resurrect you into a new life. But you've said, no, I don't want to follow you, Jesus. I want to do my own thing. And bit by bit by bit, you do things that are killing you, that are adding to the disease inside of you. Adding to the disease on your soul, it's almost like a kind of a cancer. That it's, it's, it's certain that it's going to get you in the end. Your only hope is to go to Christ and to put yourself to death, to have him take you and give you a new life and take you into a really glorious life. So your two options are homicide or disease. And you see it, you can see it all around the place. You can see it in our culture that people do things and they keep doing things and then they become a slave to something and they keep finding other gods and things that they're going to worship expecting that they're going to help them and that they're going to help their soul and help how they feel on the inside but they just create more hurt, more pain, more slavery and more death. And maybe even as Christians, sometimes we're in this weird kind of tussle aren't we whereas it's it's a tussle between yeah i know that god's calling me over to here and that's going to bring a huge amount of health to my soul but i also want to engage in all these other pursuits and pursue these these gods because they look like they're going to bless me it looks like xbox is going to bless me or if i go shopping it's going to bless me or if i buy lots of stuff it's going to bless me god says or jesus says he says die to self Don't die from disease, die to self and let me bring you alive and take you into a zone that you never even dreamed of. You see, there's a... um, I'm not sure how many of you have heard of Blaise Pascal. Have you heard of Blaise Pascal? I think he ended up, he was the father of of computer code, is that right? Pascal had this interesting uh, argument and it's a little bit similar to the lepers in, in some ways. Pascal had this argument where he said, look you can't prove or disprove God through philosophy or argument, just purely argument. Uh, he said, so given that there's huge negative consequences of not following God, you're better off just to take a punt that God's real and follow him rather than take the punt that he's not and find out later on that he is. And so Pascal had this thing, uh, and it's quite well known, it's called Pascal's Wager. And uh, really, really... It's, it's quite helpful, but atheists have quite rightly pointed out that I don't. You know, I said, "Do you think God would be really happy with someone following Him just because they thought they were just covering their bases?" You know, and it's, it's a good point. Probably, I uh, watched a uh, an interview on uh, Seven Thirty Report. It was on the sixteenth of December last year, and it was uh, if you've ever heard of Christopher Hitchens, he's another atheist dude. And uh, the opening question in this interview was. Uh, Actually, no, it might have been two or three questions in. But the question was, how do you feel about people who are praying for your salvation right now? Because right? he had cancer and he literally died last year on the 16th of December. And uh, well, in a sense, it was really noble. He wasn't really going for the Pascal's wager thing. He was just kind of saying, well, that'd be a bit cheap and that'd be a bit stupid, wouldn't it? If the whole of my life I followed this thing and then right at the end, I uh, changed my mind on this because I'm in pain. And he actually didn't like the fact that people were praying for him because he thought it was a bit cheap. And there is, there is a sense in that. There's a sense in uh, if you get to the end of your life and you're in pain and you're scared about going to hell, there's a sense in which you don't even love Christ. You don't even want him. And there's a cheapness about it and a self-centeredness about it um, that may not get you over the line in terms of saving faith. In fact, I don't think it probably would. G.K. Chesterton said this in uh, his book, Orthodoxy, I think it is. Men live on the brink of mysteries and harmonies into which they never enter. And with their hand on the door latch, they die die on the outside. I actually think this is probably true, not just of um, people who don't love Jesus, but I actually think it's true of us too. We are a lot like uh, lepers Not the ones in the Bible, but let me tell you the kind of lepers I think we are. We're the kind of lepers where we go and we find all this food. And it's almost like we go to a sizzler salad bar and we hit the first thing on the salad bar, which is the freshly warmed bread rolls. They're nice, aren't they? Yeah? Does anyone like those? I'm on my own. No? Yes. Freshly warmed bread rolls and there's a nice little thing of butter. You just unwrap it and get your little knife out and you put it on and it all melts and you just... It's lovely. But you you know what I reckon we're like? I reckon we're like uh people who go up in relation to God we go and we grab the bread roll and we go back and we sit down if you went to sizzler and there was someone sitting there and they just had like 14 bread rolls all piled on a plate right and they just and you look at them and it's just like their, their face is radiant right they're just going these things rock these are just and they're out there I mean they're going around from table to table and they're just going seriously like they're like a bread roll evangelist at sizzler It's like no no don't have the steak don't have the fries just Come, 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 look, look at all these bread. You'd just go, you're an idiot, wouldn't you? But the weird thing is, I reckon, in a spiritual sense, is that God actually invites all of us here into something far, far deeper and richer than you can even imagine. But a lot of the time, I reckon, we go up and we grab the bread roll and the butter and we go, oh, this is pretty good. I've got a little taste of what God's like, but I'm happy with that. And we just go and sit down. And the, and the banquet's left open. And we don't go and gorge ourselves on the banquet. We just go and fill up on the bread rolls, the white bread. And there's people around just going, like preachers like me today, going, man, like, it doesn't matter how close you are to God or how deep your relationship is with God, there is so much more and it's so much better, all right? And these are the people standing around the person with the 14 bread rolls and just going, oh, no, don't stop at the bread rolls, man. They've got a whole kitchen out the back. They can cook you anything you want. There's steaks and there's seafood and prawns, garlic prawns. You can go and have whatever you want. And the, the person saying that is a bit like me this morning. I want to say to you that if you fully just write your life off and die to yourself, there is a depth and a beauty in the things that God wants to give you that you don't even know about. And you know what? I can say that about every single person in this room It doesn't matter how deep your relationship is with God, I say to you this morning, there is something far beyond what you can even imagine that you haven't got yet. So it's like (laughs) and don't don't kind of hear this wrong. Don't go, oh, he's putting a you know, he's twisting my arm there. This is not an arm twist, right? This is like twisting someone's arm to eat a steak meal that's been cooked somewhere instead of eating sand. Do you get what I'm saying? This is not an arm twist, and I don't think God does an arm twist. I think He just goes, seriously, like come and check this gear out. You just go, not oh, bread rolls, fine, thanks. All right, I did my 15 minutes quiet time in the morning. Of you know, I remember a while ago seeing in Kurong, they just going five-minute devotionals with God. And I'm just going, seriously, I mean that's that's maybe one of the you know the crusty bits of the bread rolls has just fallen on the ground. That's probably that's what that is. <laughs> you get that? You have walk past, you've gone. You keep the bread roll, I'll just have that crumb. That's, you know, like God's going, oh, I have got some incredible stuff for you and some deep stuff for you and some richness that you don't even know. All right, let's keep moving. <laughs> Let me tell you what the fruit of death is. This is what I pray in the project this year that there would be lots and lots of fruit that comes from all of our death this year, right? Check this here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is cool, isn't it? Wouldn't you love to see this? I'd love to see it in the project. I'd love to see really, really, really fruitful people. But see, Jesus is saying the way that you get really fruitful is by dying really well. It's probably going to hurt. Check this one out. This one haunts me most of the time. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 12, Paul says, So death is at work in us, but life in you. Read this a while ago, uh, and it just really stood out to me. And it was like God was saying, the fruitfulness or the life that is produced out of you is inversely proportional to the amount of death that you put yourself to. So if you big time put your own desires to death and you you pursue God and you pursue the riches of God and you just want to do what God's asked you to do and you're just obedient to Him and you're literally 24-7, you've just got a life of wanting to worship Him. doesn't mean you sing all the time because worship mostly is not singing, it is sometimes, but you just want to worship Him through everything that you do, you will produce lots and lots of life. So it's an interesting thing, like if if you're sitting there and you're kind of thinking, man, I don't really think there's a whole lot of life that's happening around me. You know, what you need to look at is how much death you're putting yourself to. It's what you need to do. And that's where, for me, I just think, sometimes you go through seasons in your life and you just kind of go, man, I don't really feel like I'm doing anything at all in this season. Paul would say, have a look at the death side. Are you putting yourself to death? And the cool thing about Jesus up the top here is... He's actually speaking to people that want to save their lives. He's not saying, you've got to deny yourself and there's absolutely nothing in it for you. He's saying, no, if you give yourself to me, you'll get to keep your life. I mean, it's it's weird. We don't have time to go into it. But Jesus, at some level there, is appealing to some kind of self-interest. But it's a self-interest that gets consumed in him. And that is cool. All right, we're almost there. Four, God works through people who have nothing to lose. Three decisions of these lepers changed their nation stay where we are, go to the enemy, go back and invite the others. Those are the critical ones, and they could have gone either way on those. They had nothing to lose. See, against all odds and with good reasoning, four lepers saved an entire city and nation from destruction. You see, there were basically four possibilities and one minor chance of living. And they said, let's go. Let's give it a go. Bertrand Russell, a very famous uh, uh, atheist, he's actually dead now. I'm sure he's not an atheist now, but uh, he was an atheist. (laughs) I guess you'll find out for sure then, don't you? But uh, he wrote this, I regard religion as a disease born of fear and as a source of untold misery to the human race. You know, Bertrand Russell is wrong religion's actually not born of fear Jesus said very clearly that all faith is born out of a sense of bankruptcy that's what it is it's not fear, it's bankruptcy this is what Jesus said in Matthew 5.3 blessed are the poor in spirit read blessed are the bankrupt blessed are the bankrupt for theirs is the kingdom of heaven think about that if you're bankrupt you get it all if you realise you're bankrupt and you've got nothing to offer, you get it all. You get everything. It's just like you're not going up to God and saying, can you just give me half your kingdom? He's going, no, I'm going to give you it all. All you people who realise you're bankrupt and that you need my help, I'm going to give you everything. You see, only when you look inside and realise it is hopeless, it's only then that you actually turn to the giver of life. You see, gain biblically is relative. Check this out. Paul says in Philippians 2, whatever gain I had. The reason why I'm bringing all this up is one of the classic objections at a heart level for all of us and for me included when I was preparing this is you can, you can sit and I was sitting when I was doing this preparation I'm just kind of going, well, I feel like I do have things to lose. If I go 100% all out in pursuit of God and following Him, I do have some stuff to lose, and I'm tempted to hang on to that stuff and not go all out. But you know what? Gain, biblically, is a relative concept. Check this out. This is Paul, Philippians 2. But whatever gain I had, I counted as what? Loss. All right? So here's the thing. We'll read the rest of this in a minute, but just think about everything that you've got, all the esteem that you've got in people's eyes, all the possessions you've got, all the commitments you've got. Paul would say to all of you today, comparatively, that it's actually a loss. You've got it on the wrong side of the ledger. It's like often with God we sit down and we just kind of go, he's offering me this gain, but I've already got this amount of gain. Paul's going, no, there's no gain. Comparatively, all of this gain is actually loss. All right? And you should be willing to let go of losses easily. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I count everything as loss. It's like a vending machine, right? Let the coin drop into the, the coin box at the bottom. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's entirely possible that some of us are with Paul on this today. It's also entirely possible that a whole bunch of us aren't with him on it. Like seriously? Like do you sit there this morning? Like, see, I see, I don't know whether I can say this. And this is not a condemnation thing. This is a there are riches for you, people. There are riches for you that you haven't even dreamed about. And Paul's saying, I can't everything is lost. Because knowing Christ surpasses. Not just this is not like I think the Melbourne Cup last year was like almost a dead heat, wasn't it, last year? This is not like almost a dead heat. This is clear. He's saying way better than anything, way better than health, way better than money, way better than fame, fortune, popularity, way better than getting to the end of Call of Duty or being like a champion on World of Warcraft, way better than having lots of cool clothes. He's just going, it doesn't even compare. And it's at this point as a Christian where you just think, you've got to decide and I've got to decide, do we believe him? Like, honestly, do you believe it? I like, really believe it? Because probably for most of us, there's at least some areas in our lives where you're just going to go, there's some areas there where I actually don't believe him. I don't believe him. I don't believe it surpasses everything else. And this is, and it's not like the reaction needs to be, oh, right, you twisted my arm and I feel really guilty now. That's not the deal. You just, it's like there's a banquet set out for you that you don't even know about. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, everything is a loss compared to knowing Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. <laughs> it's got to go to the tip. Well, that's how, comparatively, that's what it is. It's going to the tip. As it is written, check this out 1 Corinthians 2.9. 9. What no no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. No one's seen it. No one's heard about it. No one can even imagine how good it is. This is an invitation. This is not a condemnation. This is invitation. All right? C.S. Lewis said, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Lewis says that God actually finds our desires not too strong, but he actually finds them too weak. We settle for something short of what we could have. Read this. uh, Dave Weeks down here gave me a book that he's reading to have a bit of a skim read through and I found this really cool prayer from Augustine uh, who lived around, uh, I think, 300 AD, somewhere there in his book, The Confessions. Check this out. Late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you and see you all within as I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. You were with me and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you. Though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant and I drew in my breath and now pant after you. I tasted you and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours we would be a devil-stomping, world-changing church, would we not, if we were all like that, wouldn't we? And not not that, please, again, please don't hear me. This is not an arm twist or a condemnation. This is, can you hear Augustine? He's saying this is delightful. This is delightful. This is amazing. But then you have crunch time. when you get a little bit what do you do with it when these lepers came to the edge of the camp they went into a tent and ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them then they said to one another we are not doing right this day is a day of good news see today is a day of good news this is this is good news that god has a banquet for you that you that you've had a little bit of But the point about you having this banquet is not about you doing what the lepers did and going in and having this amazing banquet and then keeping it to yourself. See, these uh, lepers, they actually went from uh, being gluttons to sharers. They went from having nothing to lose to everything to share, didn't they? And that's actually the story of everyone that loves Jesus. You had nothing to lose, really. But now you've just got everything to share, It sounds a bit like, when I was preparing it, I thought it sounds a bit like Matthew 13:22. Jesus is telling the story of the sower. He says, As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears of the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Of all the seed types or places where the seed lands in the parable of the sower, this would have to be the riskiest one for Western, Westerners in a nice middle-class town like Toowoomba, wouldn't it? That you would be dulled, that you would lose your wonder and your delight and the depth of your relationship with God because you were worried about money. And that doesn't even... He's not even saying because you got money and you're scared about losing it, you either want it and you don't have it or you have it and you want more and you're worried about losing it. It's just all these things kind of going on. It's strange because Jesus talks probably, you know, if you look at it topically, money's right up pretty close to the top of his list in terms of the frequency which, which he talks about money. And probably in the, I mean, Nathan and I were just talking the other day, probably in the church, in this church, we need to have frequency in talking about money similar to what Jesus has because I think it's a big issue for us and it can dull us. And maybe some of us here today are dull and you sit there and you kind of go, eh, I don't know, Jesus is all right. I could get into it, maybe. And you know, you're just dull and you're deceived because of stuff. And maybe you need to get rid of some stuff. But the problem mostly with human beings is not that we've got bad things, it's just that our bad things become the ruling things. That's what it is. They become the slave driver. And God doesn't want stuff to be a slave driver for anyone, whether you got it or not. You may have heard of this guy, uh, Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a uh, missionary that went to uh, South America. And uh, they made uh, him and uh, four other missionaries made friends with some, uh, I think it was in Ecuador, he made, he made friends with some, with the tribe that they really wanted to go and tell about Jesus. He loved Jesus heaps and wanted other people to love him too. And uh, he made friends with this uh, chief or this uh, leader guy in the tribe. And then him and the four missionaries uh, basically decided that they were going to go in and, uh, and and try and share something about Jesus. And they seemed to be reasonably tactical in terms of how they were going to work their way in there and just share about Jesus. But the leader guy from the tribe had lied to the rest of his tribe. And they, literally they came out. This is around about 1950s, might have been 53, I think. The, uh, the the men in the tribe came out and they literally they killed the five missionaries. And uh, I think their bodies may have floated downstream. Um gutsy gutsy guys had a huge impact but check out this journal entry that he wrote in his journal some years before october 28 1949 he is no fool who gives up sorry he gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose that's us all right i think that's, that's biblically sound isn't it god's saying oh, that's really what jesus says You try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. You can't keep that thing. Give it to me, and then you'll get it. (laughs) And Elliot's saying, and living it out, and dying it out maybe even, he says, give it. Give it for Christ, and you'll get to keep it. Give it up. So that you get something you can't lose. All right. I'm going to finish with some uh, logistical stuff about the project. It's going to be a really doughy way to end it, but I hope that it connects into what we're talking about here because what we want, big time, the leadership here in the project is really, really fruitful, a really fruitful church. A really fruitful church is a really dynamic one and it's going to come from uh, the kind of spirit probably that uh, Jim Elliott had. All right, here's the logistical stuff and then I'm going to pray. Actually, I might pray near. I'll pray for you near, and then we'll talk about this. Can you just stand with me for a moment, just to stretch your legs? Love it if you could. God, I pray that uh, we would not be like the man at the gate who didn't have faith and didn't seek uh, to trust in your word and he missed out. God, I pray that today, doesn't matter who it is, Lord, whether they're uh, uh, new. People to the church, whether they uh, don't love you, whether they do love you, I pray, Lord, that there would not be one person in this church that would miss out like that man at the gate. I pray that we would get to the depth that, that we think there is in you and then just go, oh, man, there's even more. There's even more. I pray for this church, Lord. I pray that as we do that and as we kill ourselves spiritually that you actually make us really, really fruitful and that you take us on in a beautiful, abundant, glorious life of glorifying you and following you and worshipping you 24-7. And God, I pray that you'd help us to uh, be in community with one another so that we can inspire each other, so that we see someone else, Lord, maybe who's just gone deeper with you and they're going, oh, you've got to get up to where I am, man, it's so good. And not in a proud way, Lord, but just in an enthusiastic way breakouts of fasting, Lord, seeking after you, prayer, just commitment of, just chunks of time, Lord, to prayer. I just want to connect with you. And it's not an arm twist, discipline thing necessarily, Lord. We want to see that too, but it's not that It's it's filled with passion. It's a discipline filled with passion. And Lord, please make the project really fruitful this year. And I pray that you would do it corporately as you do it individually with us. Amen. Why don't you grab a seat? I'm just going to run through a couple of procedural things and then we're done. Uh, we have got approval from uh, Richard Brown at the school here to hang our sign out the front on the highway permanently. We've not done any advertising really. Most One of the things that we asked, I've asked a couple of people today, is how did you find out about us? Because we haven't really told that many people that we're here. Uh, we've, we've obviously stood up and said a whole bunch of stuff at TCC, but outside of that, people we are kind of this weird phantom kind of thing, you know. It goes to walks. They're kind of there, but we're just not really sure. Um, so we're doing this. Uh, we've got this sign. It was uh, pretty close to being ready to pick up on Friday, apparently, but it just didn't quite get there. So that'll be up sometime in the next week. We're uh, going to be doing some uh, advertising to the school community, um, and there's a good chance that we're actually going to write our own Highfields Herald article. Because it's apparently what you do. We asked them if they wanted to do a story on us and they never got back to us. So someone told us, just write your own article and they'll publish it. So I reckon we could make some really cool stuff up. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. But we'll, uh, we'll, write, we'll see if we can write a story. Uh, as of, uh, I think, about the 8th, we actually get to contribute to the church word in the Highfields Herald. So you'll see something from me in there. Um, and you can choose to read that or not. All right. But that's going to be in there. And we may even down the track, we've got approval uh, from the church that we could actually put an advertisement in the paper as well to say that we're here. Um, So that's uh, really good. We we could have done some of this stuff earlier on, but the leadership were really pretty nervous, to be honest, about doing it early on because we wanted to make sure our structures were good and we knew where we were going enough that we could have another... I mean, seriously, it could probably just pull a hamstring for us if we get like another 20 or 30 people on a Sunday, okay, than what we're getting at the moment. Um, we could do it, but I'm just saying, like, it's a bit of a stretch for us. And back then, if we did it, like, two months into the project, we would have been, I don't know, it would have been like the early church where they had 3,000 people saved and they would have been going, what the heck do we do with all these people, right? That kind of would have been us. But we feel like we're pretty close to uh, being able to handle that, so we're going public. Obviously, uh, for those who are new, one of the things that's really important, it probably does 60% of the heavy lifting in the church, uh, is community groups. So we really only ask people to be committed to three things, Sunday morning church, uh, being part of biblical community and um, making a regular contribution and serving each other. Uh, So we do community groups. It looks like we're going to uh, expand our community groups. Our goal by the end of this year is actually to double the number of community groups that we've got. We're going to go to two Highfields community groups within probably the next six weeks and uh, we're keen to get a town uh, youth community group happening and uh, another town adult community group happening as well, all right? So obviously, all of a sudden, some of you might, you're doing the maths, and you're kind of going, Peter, Nathan, diff, that's three, and you're just six. Didn't you just say six? Yeah, I just said six, which is really cool. So we're just praying that God would uh, put it on people's hearts that the contribution they might make might be a community group leader, all right? And we're not going to come up and twist your arm, but you can pray about that, and we'll we'll do some training with you and help you to uh, know... uh, um, what you should be doing with that, and we'll give you some content each week uh, to work through. Uh, newcomers group, I'm just going to... Down the track, what we're going to do is we'll have a newcomers community group that'll run for about six to eight weeks, so the people who are just coming that are new, who are going, what the heck is this animal called The Project? Well, we're just going to tell you, in six to eight weeks, we'll do a community group, and then that'll feed into the other community groups. One of the... Uh, trying to go through this really quick. One of the things I'm really excited about is doing redemption groups. I just uh, finished reading this book by this guy called Mike Wilkerson on redemption and it's just exactly what, oh, it just gets me really excited. It it takes all of the idolatry of the heart and the unceasing worship stuff and puts it on the ground with people who've got some very deep uh, heart issues. So for people who have, uh, I mean, the the guy in the book uh, works through, uh, helps people to work through things like uh, rape, uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, uh, addictions, um, that kind of stuff... Really puts it on the ground. It's really, really good stuff. And uh, what we will be doing is uh, when we kind of hit situations where people have got some really deep stuff that needs working through, we're going to have breakout kind of a breakout community group called the Redemption Group where we'll bring people out and help them to work through some of that stuff. We've already got some people in the church who have been through some of that stuff and uh, We're just pumped about God redeeming people and restoring and making things fresh and new again in people. And this is one of the tools that we're actually going to do that. Don't have enough for a redemption group yet, but uh, we'll be doing that soon. Next one is discipleship. You're going to hear about discipleship in the next couple of weeks. We're really keen to get some one-to-one stuff up and running. We've got a really cool book that we want to use for people who are going to disciple each other. Um, I think it was Aaron Hamilton said to me it's good for people to be one up and one down in terms of discipleship have someone looking over you and you looking over someone else being discipled and discipling so that's, uh, that's in, the, in the pipeline and that'll happen in the next couple of weeks um, because Nathan Diff and I actually uh, all have full-time jobs um, we don't really get too excited at the thought of burning out that, that just doesn't get us excited at all <laughs> um so one of the things that we're going to institute as part of our church calendar which will be on the website before too long is a week i was people thought it was a bit informal i thought we could just call it free week all right but uh hospitality week where basically either you have someone over or you go over and be like get a free or be one that's kind of the deal with this week and that's going to happen like once every four weeks okay So what will happen during that week is that will give the opportunity and an opportunity for the leadership team to get together and have a community group, which we need. Um, And we're kind of hoping that in that hospitality week, you guys will just be sticking your hands up to have people who don't love Jesus over to your place, take them out for coffee, take them to Wises if you've got lots of money and bless them. All right. Uh, Have people from your community groups over, other people from the church, and let's just do hospitality really, really well. This is something from the beginning that I felt God um kind of put on my heart that had to be really important and central to the church and that's hospitality we've got a book on it which you're welcome to uh buy off me which i didn't bring any over but it's called the meal with jesus and um the in it basically says if you look at the book of luke jesus is either going to a meal coming from a meal or at a meal and he's just eating all the time all right and they criticised him and they said you're a glutton and a drunkard now you have to eat and drink a lot to be a glutton and well to get accused of that don't you so he's just going and doing stuff with people all the time. So get them in, all right? Be nice to each other. Love each other. Invite people over. People you don't even know where they're just kind of going, this is going to be weird. My kids are going to tear things apart in their house. And you're just going, no, just get together, all right? And do life together. And let's not, like, let's not do MasterChef, yeah? All right? where you just kind of got over a 35-course meal where everything's sorted out, you know, and you, the cutlery that you've used once in the last decade. It's just dinner meals, I don't know, toasted sandwiches, all right? Vegemite and cheese, let's just be hospitable and just be with each other, all right? And that'll be cool, won't it? Wouldn't it be cool if uh, the whole pressure that's come from cooking shows just got dissolved and it was cool and people came over and they go, Vegemite and cheese toasted sandwich, like that rocks, all right? And my third son would say that. He'd just go, prawns? I don't want prawns. All right? I don't want garlic, prawns, I don't want a steak, Vegemite and cheese, all sweet. All right. So we want to get into that. The, the next one is, Geez, I need to finish, I'm sorry, I'm going over. Is the 30, uh, you can have a look on the website at what the 30 is about because it's all up there. Basically 30 is a men's discipleship group that we're starting up this year. And seriously, uh, it's really about giving you a punch in the nose and a blood nose if you're a dude, right? So we're not going to play with toys Uh, we're just going to sit down because we actually think there's passive grace in the Bible where God does a heavy lifting and then there's active grace where God says, where Paul says, for example, he says, I worked harder than all of them yet. It wasn't I, but the grace of God within me. So if uh, you're a bit fragile, the 30 may or may not be suitable for you. You can be the judge of that, but it's really about getting in there and saying, are we hitting the mark where God wants us to be? That'll be open from uh, year 11 boys up. (sighs) I've talked about the books that are central to our direction and the last one is this. If everything that we want to do this year, and if people keep coming in the numbers like they've come this morning, it's probably guaranteed if if the leadership team's responsible for it all, we will burn out, all right? And the church could be done by the end of the year if the three of us burn out, okay? I don't think that's going to happen because what we've found in the church is people are just volunteering and making contribution, which is what we need. And that's really part of our values as well, is we're just really saying come and join us and come and work alongside us and just pick something, one thing. God wants you to do regularly and partner with us, and it'll just rock. There's a guy in Germany, I think, or Europe over there somewhere, who works full time and has a church of a thousand people. All right, and I reckon it's probably because the thousand people are all chipping in. All right, and this is not a rebuke kind of thing. Like you're not chipping in, and you've got to give us some more stuff. All right, it's not one of those. This is like it's already happening. People are already doing it. Literally, I I mean, to set up the chairs, I didn't even set up one chair this morning, all right? Because someone's just going, I want to help out. I want to do that, all right? And that's the kind of thing that we need is just everyone just prays and they seek the Lord and say, Lord, what's the one thing at the moment that you just want me to be regularly doing at the project? And we'll be really, it'll be good. And Ephesians 4 will happen, that the body will mature itself because we're all contributing to each other. Woo, I'm done. Adios.